The Rubin Institute had nothing to do with high-temperature superconductors, so I cannot say I had spent much time thinking about it. Hugh explained the whole drama. We thought we had purged our moral grotesques, the harassers, racists, bigots, zealots. The problem was these people technically had contracts. They held equity, tenure, real estate. They were hanging around the universities we thought we had shooed them from. Important conferences on graph theory and 17th century Welsh agriculture were being derailed by disconcerted whispers that he had showed up and had the temerity to ask a question of the panel. So there was some appeal to the idea that these people would now go live on an island in the North Atlantic. This new institute said, give me your cancelees and deplorables, your preeminent deviants. We'll take them. The popular vision at the beginning was of an academic prison colony, where the worst behaved of great minds would live out their days, closed off from the pleasures of civilized life. We had not, Hugh said, expected them to have such a good time. We had not expected the footage of one probable bigot and one confirmed groper strolling across lush seaside lawns, sitting on a slim white bench, clinking their fields medals in a taunting toast, it seemed, to every despicable act they had never paid for. It turned out the last thing these people wanted was our civilization. At the Rubin Institute Plymouth, they had their own. It was a libertarian, libertine dream. Bottomless funding, unencumbered by institutional regulations. They screwed students and eschewed trigger warnings. The enticing promise the Institute made to faculty was no code of conduct, no human resources, only your work. The promise it made to students? Wait, there would be students? This promise was learn from geniuses. Graduate sans debt, feel free to carry mace. The Institute was shooting the moon, taking the human discards that no one else wanted, and winning. The place became a media fixation. Its faculty were enemies of the people. We had wanted them exiled, but then they had not been sent to Siberia. It was sandals for scandals with tax-exempt status. The prior year, 122 presidential merit scholars had passed up Harvard to go there for free. It was an outrage. It could not go on. Demonstrations ran perpetually on the New Haven Pier. This was where the ferry departed for Plymouth Island, which the Institute had purchased entire. The pier was ground zero for all the wrong the Institute represented. It was a nuclear testing site, an oil pipeline on indigenous land, now and then, someone chained herself across the gangplank. Hugh and I watched the ferry's burbling stern nudge into the dock. Meanwhile, 30 or 40 protesters, probably Yale undergraduates, waved signs along the lines of, benefit is complicity, attendance is assent. Hugh clutched my hand. He smirked apologetically at no one in particular. This was an attempt to communicate that the situation was not how it appeared. It was not him, not the tall, blondish man, but rather the small Jewish woman beside him who had compelled us to move to what several nearby signs called Rape Island.